This podcast is brought to you by Giant Food. And today, more than ever, they are committed to you because we are all in this together so we can continue to share the little things that matter. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Peace, everyone, and welcome to the Edible Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa L. Jones, broadcasting live from the lobby of The Line, D.C. This podcast is where dynamic people of color in the food and agriculture space share their personal food journeys, passions, and perspectives that stem from the land, all exemplifying the spirit of activism in their own edible way. Let's get started. And welcome to the Edible Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa L. Jones, broadcasting here on Full Service Radio. So on today's show, I have the deepest honor and privilege to talk with no other than Senior Pastor Heber Brown III of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church based in Baltimore, Maryland. Pastor Brown is the founder of the Black Church Food Security Network, which is an organization that helps congregations start gardens on church-owned land to advance food equity in impoverished neighborhoods. Additionally, he is the founding director of Orita's Freedom School. He's a social entrepreneur, change agent, motivator, R&B lover, and scholar. Welcome to Edible Activist, Pastor Brown, aka my cousin. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. Well, you know, we officially became family when I bumped into you at the Bugs Conference last year in New York City, because I said, I've been looking for you, Pastor Brown, and I've been wanting you to be on the show. And immediately we were like, cuz, hey, cuz. <laughs> yeah, you have dynamic energy and my spirit, is uh, it knows that frequency well. So I was like, oh, yeah, she's familiar. I know we just met but we've been connected before. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Again, I I really do mean it. Mean that what I, what I said, you know, definitely is a privilege to speak with you. I have been, you know, just following your moves for quite some time, and just you know, just so many just great words. Um, about you and your working with your whole team. I enjoy seeing your videos from the the R&B, you know, Instagram stories and videos to being, you know, building your garden beds and doing the farmer's markets at the church. And so definitely we're just going to dive in. You know, I, um, as we said it, you're a pastor <laughs> and, you know, you're, you are, um, were you born, born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland? Born and raised in Baltimore. That's exactly right. You know what? It's funny because when I when I first when you and I spoke last year, I don't know why I just you know pulled a southern twang, and maybe it's just that Baltimore dialect that was coming out just a bit, just a bit. <laughs> I, I think it's a little bit of that, and I spent a lot of summers down the country at my uh, big mama's house in uh, Virginia, Northumberland County, Virginia, and uh, 
on my dad's side, we're from Aden, North Carolina. And so uh, I have a strong, uh, strong linkages down the country, as we say. Well, that, that, that's Southern for sure. That's Southern for sure. I have a big mom, a big mom as well. She's in Jackson, Mississippi. So I love that. Mm. I love that. So pastor, tell me at what point did your pastoral journey cross over into or intersect with food security and advocacy? Uh, it was about 2010, around 2009 and 2010, I started thinking seriously about the ways in which uh, our church could show up uh, in the food space in some kind of meaningful way. And so personally, I started attending a lot of meetings. I was invited to join advisory boards dealing with faith and food. And that personal journey led to me thinking about how does this translate uh, into the lived experience of our church? How does it get into the DNA of the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church? So um, in 2010, after recognizing a deep pain point around food apartheid in our community, um, I was inspired to uh, take a little bit of land that our church has in our front yard and just start growing food. And that really, that was 2010, April of 2010. And that's when things really started taking off. This is all just so interesting to me and resonating on just so many levels um, from a different perspective because um, I grew up in a church, right? And, you know, um, started out in a Baptist church, you know, Christian household. And, you know, I, I feel like it's always been years of, you know, trying to pay the church off, you know, getting the land and all this other stuff. But never, ever, ever had I've come across any initiatives or, you know, been a part of any conversations about utilizing land to grow food and to capitalize off that space and reach, you know, a, a, a demographic or a market or, you know, um, who attend these churches um, to educate folks on food and, and self, you know, and, and resiliency and self-reliance. And so at that point, was there anybody else doing that work? Because that, that is just, that's just amazing to me that you just came to that space. Was anybody else doing that work or was it really just like no one? And here, look, I have this idea. We, we have churches with all this land and we, you know, we have the market like, was anybody else doing that? Were there any other conversations being held during that time in 2010? Um, there probably was. I, I don't know of any, but there probably was um, a number of people who and, and churches and groups that were doing doing this work. Maybe not as much as now, but I'm sure they were around. And I got to confess, Melissa, just let me just in full disclosure uh, say that a lot of what I'm doing right now is the fruit from uh, deep listening and study. And so the deep listening and studying that I was doing, one, um, is connected to what both of us know as it relates to the church and food, that while farming and land may not have been front and center in conversations growing up in church, food was always in the picture. Absolutely. Uh, 
right? And so for many of the special days of the year, pastor's anniversary, church anniversary, weddings, funerals. You name it. You name it. Food is in the picture. In fact, I think that's one of the relics and artifacts of the sacred and of the spiritual. And it's just, it's so ingrained in that spiritual uh, practice that sometimes it's just that we don't notice it or we don't name it in the way that it need me named. It's like, no, that's just macaroni and cheese. I'm like, nah, that's not just macaroni and cheese. That's a portal to a deep understanding uh, that connects to memory and stories and tradition. And so um, I, I think that was always there and it just took me a while just to kind of recognize it. And I think the other part is like, there were pastors in churches who were doing this in the 20th century. And the more I studied one person, it led me to another person, which led me to another person. And so I think it's far more a part of the black church tradition than it's often given credit for. And I think, not, not I think, I know one of the things that I'm committing to is writing a book to help to spotlight the churches and the people who really laid uh, foundation and bedrock for me and for us to even think about black church in this way. Wow. I look forward to that book and I'll probably be the first one buying several copies because I, again, you know, just, just growing up and growing up in the church, I, I didn't know of such a thing. Those conversations were not had. And, you know, I have to be honest. I remember a couple years ago, you know, I had stood up in, in the church that I, I belong to and I think this was like New Year's or something. And, you know, it was, you know, we have a pastor who I adore and just, you know, have the deepest respect for. And it was like, ask pastor, pastor anything. And one of the things I just felt, com- you know, convicted to ask or compelled to ask was, you know, how can the church, how can our church be the leader in educating our attendees, our congregation you know, in, you know, promoting a healthy lifestyle, you know, growing your own food. I said, because coming up, all I knew was the anniversaries and, and the cakes and the mac and cheese and, but also, you know, celebrating, you know, having life celebrations because someone died, you know, from a heart attack, you know, or, you know, you know, had a lifestyle that wasn't as healthy. That's what I knew coming up. And so a few years, I remember I said, how can we be a leader and in, in all of this, because, you know, it's the, the food that, you know, that's, that's hurting us is present in the church. But I think that we have, uh, we have an opportunity to be at the forefront because when you think about all of, you know, a lot of the, the diseases and heart disease and diabetes, you know, those mostly affect neighborhoods of color, communities of color, marginalized communities, and just people in color in general. And I have to be honest, I didn't get a straightforward, I didn't get a straight answer. Yeah. I didn't at all. So with that said, you know, in in the work that you do, I definitely just want to touch on the disconnectedness that I feel. And you may, and your perspective is your perspective. You're way into this work than I am, Pastor Brown. And you, you, again, like you have worked with, you know, a solid core that has laid the foundation for this work. But I do feel like there's still a disconnectedness from, you know, the Black church and our roots and what we've known before and what we've done before. And do you see that changing for in 
on a much bigger level. I know that you're in your community in Baltimore doing this. And I, there's actually a couple other, you know, organizations that I follow that are in this space. But do you see that changing? Do you see us really going in that direction? Because I'm afraid that for some that it, it just won't. Yeah, I think that a few things come to mind there. One, kudos to you for standing and sharing that question uh, to your pastor, who it's very clear that you love and respect deeply. Um, but it, it wasn't took a- easy either. It wasn't easy. I'm known for doing some things that just people won't do. And I'm telling you when I and I don't want, I don't I don't want to cut your point off. But um, I remember asking that question and he didn't answer it directly because he didn't know how, like he knew how to answer, but he didn't want to address it. But I will tell you, when I walked out of that church, Pastor Brown, I had several people come up to me and say and they said, thank you, because mm. and it was it had never been addressed ever. Wow. I think that for a number of pastors who uh, would hear a question like that, they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't answer straightforward anyway. And some of them even wouldn't know how to answer. Um, The reality is that many of us growing up um, with aspirations to be in the preaching ministry, we are most often introduced to models of ministry that center and privilege oratorical skills. Um, And so the Martin Luther King Jr. model of preaching. We get that. Um, you know, um, Gayrod Wilmore, the scholarship of James Cone. We get that. We're not often introduced to preachers and pastors that found ways to honor the integration of theology and ecology. So we don't study Vernon Johns in many of the seminaries across the country, at least years ago. I'm glad to hear this changing to some degree. But we don't study Reverend Vernon Johns out of Virginia, who was the predecessor of Martin Luther King Jr. at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Alabama, who was a great theological mind and academician, but also would preach in overalls and farm boots and sell watermelon and produce on the front porch of the church right after service. We don't see those models of ministry. We don't see models like that of Albert Clegg and the Shrine of the Black Madonna, who was putting forward this vision of buying land and having the black church own land, grow food and make sure that black people had their own source uh, of food, not just access to other people's food, but had control and agency and authority over their own food environment. Uh, We don't see those models as well. I think one of the things that's happened during the Great Migration is that as many of us and many of our families moved north. We also, there was so much distance created between ourselves and the land that is hard to embrace or even think about. Imagine even an agrarian theology that helps us to think about as a practitioner, how do we read a Bible full of parables and stories about seeds and land and plants uh, and even the witness of uh, creation, even the witness of God manifested through creation, right? It's all in the book. But if we don't have lenses of an agrarian nature, then it's hard for us even to translate that as pastors and preachers. And so we actually many times just do in our pulpits what we were exposed to and what we've seen growing up. And as a part of my mission in life to present to the world another model, not a better one, not a worse one, but another model, um, so that younger preachers and newer pastors coming up can see, oh, wow, so you can preach on Sunday and be on the farm on Monday 
and, you know, meeting with farmers on Tuesday, like this all can live together? Absolutely. Finally, I'll say very quickly, I think the challenges of our present moment, uh, Melissa, are going to push a lot of pastors to reconsider what ministry is. And that's where we'll have an opening to go even deeper in these kinds of conversations. Because nobody right now is trying to hear, um, you get a car, you get a house, you get a boo, you get a bay, and that being the crux of the gospel message. Right. God's going to bless you. God's going to keep you. God's going right. to, like, nobody trying to hear that right now. Nope. So I think it's pushing preachers and pastors to hear God in a deeper way and perhaps a different way. And that's, again, where I see a crack in the window for ministers to say, wait a minute, if my folk can't come to church and if offerings are impacted and if church as we knew it has got to be, has to change, what does that mean for me as a preacher? What do I need to do? Do I need to roll up my own sleeves and figure out some other kinds of uh, tasks and jobs that can complement my vocation? How does that happen? And so I think this is a great opportunity for that. Wow. Man, we can just turn that into another episode, Pastor Brown. <laughs> There's so much I want to say. There's so much I want to say, but I'm just afraid that I, I you know, just, again, I want to just be respectful of, of you know, of um, our, I just want to be respectful. And so, whew, I don't even know where to go from that. <laughs> See, now you got me curious about the disrespect. Let's just get disrespectful, please, and go deep into this conversation because it might just help somebody and some preacher who might stumble upon it or churchgoers or whatever. So don't, let's take the, no holds barred, Melissa. Let's go in. You're right. You're right. I think... And maybe it's not, I think, oh my gosh, you just pulled just so many cords. The messaging that I have been accustomed, and again, I'm going to make this personal to me because religion and and spirituality, it's a personal thing. But what I knew coming up was a certain message that was preached about, you know, getting the wealth and owning the land and things just like falling in your lap. And really the the true idea of, of wealth was not a message that was, it was a message of fluff, like my entire life, right? Mm-hmm. So when I, as I get deeper into this space of, you know, um, agriculture and, and growing and gardening and really what um, our wealth was, you know, um, of extraction, right? And how our... Um, this entire world was was built off of extraction, you know, from our ancestors, the Middle Passage, slavery. Those, those were not words and messages that were taught me. Mm. And so I just, I just cringe because, and not cringe at what you're saying, because I'm over here just like fanning myself. Um, I don't want to disrespect the, the the teacher of the word, but I was not being taught. And so my my other point is that, you know, with your journey and, and what you all instill in your congregation and really connecting and making sure that you connect your attendees and your congregation to their African ancestry, that is what is also has been missing that I felt like I've been duped of. Mm. I'm very honest. Mm. And I know I just said a lot and I hope I made sense, but I just, I think what it boils down is that I feel like I've been duped. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's another whole episode right there. Uh, that's a whole another episode. Yeah. I just had to get it out. Yeah. I had to get that out. I had to get that out. And so 
you know, as someone who reads the Bible and, you know, I hear, you know, there's so many stories and, and you're right. There's so many stories and parables about us being in the garden, in the seed. I mean, you just started Genesis and I just, it's still just, I still don't understand why we don't make that connection. Why we're not pulling more of those connections in, you know, when it comes to, um, the, the agriculture foundation of it all. I just, I don't understand. And so again, I think this is just me just having a frustrating moment, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> just really getting it out. But that messaging has, has definitely gotten old. And I just, I honestly, the same way that I felt duped from the food system, right. you know, and, and growing up and not knowing I was totally duped. This, this is the, I, I feel duped in the same, in the same way as well, when it comes to this space in the church space and what was fed to me coming up. Yeah. I think you make me, Melissa, you make me think about, um, Reverend Albert Clegg, who I mentioned earlier, who said a people cannot seriously engage in liberation struggle until they adopt a revolutionary theology. Ooh. And, and what that the reason why that comes to mind for me is that most, a number of, let me not say most, a number of people who've grown up in church might resonate deeply with what you said. I'm being one of them who say, listen, I, I got duped in so many ways. And it's a delicate dance. And I even heard it in your voice, right? Because it's like we honor those relationships. We honor our ancestors. We honor our elders in the community that helped to raise us. Easter programs, Christmas plays, baby dedications, uh, the magic handshakes on your birthday, like all of that was sacred and special for me growing up in church. And I have to recognize as well that a lot of what I and perhaps others were exposed to theologically was a, a, a theology of colonization. It was the colonizer's theology. It was not a revolutionary theology. And so thoughts, uh, theologies and practices of ministry that center and celebrate agency and center and celebrate self-reliance and and center and celebrate challenging uh, power dynamics um, and political and economic and all kinds of power dynamics that are oppressing our people. Like we just don't, those weren't centered, those weren't heard. And the intersection is also the fact that a lot of pastors and preachers live at great distance from the land. And so we preach parables that we don't even understand in a deep experiential way. We preach about Jesus cussing out a fig tree and had never eaten a fig from a fig tree. Or wow. we never, we preach about a mustard, having mustard seed faith and we've never held a mustard seed in our hand. Wow. And so if preachers and pastors are living lives that are a great distance from land and farming and food, then it, it, um, it handicaps our ability to anchor ourselves in this deeply agrarian holy text and try to translate its truth in a way that makes sense for our context. And so you're not going to find a lot lot of preaching uh, in a number of churches that is inspiring people to go and say, you know what, instead of going and buy that Lamborghini, I'm going to go and buy a farm or I'm going to join a a food co-op or a buying club or I'm going to connect with a mutual aid society or a seed bank. Like those kind of Imagine imaginings and dreams don't bubble up if if you hear after you die, that's when you'll get your slice of the pie. Like that ain't working, Jack. And especially with younger people today, you know, I'm grateful for you again and others who are like demanding a change here. And again, I just hope to do a part 
based on the examples of uh, so many of these religious leaders who were not centered in my upbringing. But I hope to do a part in amplifying their stories and for anybody considering ministry, helping to feed the thought that if ministry can be about loving R&B, growing food, loving people, community organizing and social justice, then perhaps I can be a preacher. Perhaps I can be a minister if that's what it's about. And if Heber Brown and others are showing that you can be in ministry that kind of way, let me at least dip my toe in it and see if, see if it'll fit for me. Ooh. All right, y'all. On that note, we're going to take a really quick break because I need it. You're listening to Perfect Day, produced by Artists Authentic. For more of Authentic's work, visit allornothingstudios.com. This podcast is brought to you by Giant Food. Whether you are concerned about diabetes, heart health, losing weight, or just want to improve family meal times, Giant has a team of nutritionists ready to help you make the best decisions to meet your health and wellness goals. You can check out their personalized consultations online or by phone. Just go to giantfood.com nutrition, or they have nutritionists who are available to answer any of your questions at nutrition at giantfood.com. Okay, Pastor Brown, let's talk the Black Church Food Security Network mission. Um, I know we briefly, you know, spoke of, um, you know, how your your pastoral journey crossed over into food security work, but definitely want to just spend some time talking about the mission behind the food security network um, that you have founded and um bringing farms to, um, I'm sorry, bringing farm foods to church, setting up markets. Um, many of those faces of the farm, Black farmers, I know personally. And so definitely just want to touch a little bit on the mission behind that and all the just wonderful initiatives that you all um, have been working on. Sure. Yeah. So I, the Black Church Food Security Network is really a part of the overflow from one church's experience in Baltimore, the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, the church I've been blessed to pastor now for going on 12 years. Once we saw what having a garden on our front yard was doing for our church, our members, our community, and our ministry, this sacred what if started rolling around in my head. What if more churches did this and then those churches worked together in a coordinated fashion to create its own community-led food system. And that thought started rolling around because I began more and more to see that our challenges and the injustices that we face as a people, as it relates to food, those challenges are systemic. Like they're not coincidental or unintentional even. And when I recognized that The challenge was systemic. It was coordinated. It was designed. It was organized. Then the sacred imagining of what it could look like for Black churches to create something that was systemic, 
that was designed, that was organized, that was intentional, also bubbled up. And the Black Church Food Security Network is eventually what manifested. It actually was born in the middle of the Baltimore uprising. In the aftermath of the death of Freddie Gray at the hands of Baltimore City police officers, when the city goes up in open rebellion and marches and demonstrations and everything is going on uh, in the city of Baltimore at that time, um, our church started getting phone calls from people who needed food. And mm. because by that time, it, this was 2015, by 2015, our church had been growing for five years. And it was a part of our calling card. Oh, yeah. Uh, Heber Brown Church. That's what people call it. Heber Brown Church. That's the uh, garden, farming, food church. They got food, right? That's what we became known for. So by the Baltimore uprising, with that reputation already cemented in the community, it was no surprise when people started calling us saying, look, our corner store is closed. The public transportation is not running. I can't get out. Can you bring us some food? And Around that time, I talked to a good sister who I'm sure you know, Aaliyah Frazier. Yes. yes. Yeah. So Aaliyah texted me and was like, um, Heber, I'm not in Baltimore right now. At the time, she was farming on Maryland's eastern shore on Harriet Tubman's ancestral land, Black Dirt Farm. Shout out. Shout um, out. But she texted me like, hey, yo, I'm not in Baltimore right now, but I want to help. How can I help? We eventually got to the place where it was like, you know what? You a farmer. You do food. Let's make that work. And so she called farmer friends who started trucking food to Baltimore. And uh, it was amazing to, to see truckloads of potatoes and other things making their way. And we had people who were bringing donations of food to my church, which eventually became like a food depot, a uh, food distribution center of some kind. And our members uh, came to the church and would process the food, load it up on our church van. And then I would drive it around the city and set up shop on corners um, where people were requesting food or needing food. We did that for a couple of weeks. And after a few weeks of participating in that and driving food around and receiving food donations and talking to Aaliyah and others, I realized that this black church, black farmer, black community triangle had given birth to its own system in the middle of an emergency. And we were doing all right. Foundations weren't there. Government wasn't there. Uh, whoever big name people weren't there. It was just regular everyday folk who came together to make sure we ate. And that's how the Black Church Food Security Network was born. And wow. yeah, from there, uh, we just started, we just continued to spread the word and connect with other churches and say, hey, if you have some land, uh, we'd love to help you start a garden on it, give you some funds and resources and bring some volunteers um, and then phones start ringing from pastor friends from outside of Baltimore, and we started sending support beyond the state of Maryland. So now we are in a number of states, Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia. It's continuing to grow uh, because in almost every place where you have a black community, there's a black church nearby. And so yeah, yeah. it's almost like we had we are like one organization in thousands of locations because, or at least thousands of potential locations, because if you got a church and you have organized people, organized money, you got a kitchen somewhere in that church, you got land, perhaps we can put these basic ingredients together and we already do it, Melissa. And you know this, we do this for church conferences. We do this for revivals. Churches come together and work on joint projects all the time. 
And what I'm simply trying to do and what we're trying to do through the Black Church Food Security Network is take that same spirit, take that same culture, take those same existing relationships and steer it in the direction of Black land and food sovereignty. Mm, mm, mm. And yes, I have been at many of those revivals, Pastor Brown. (laughs) Minty. Minty. So a couple questions for you. I'm just curious. Is there... Uh, um, is there some type of like system or, or database or something or some type of tracker of um, black owned or church owned land? Um, is there is there a tracker or anything like that? Or do you guys have a, a sense of like how much land church land there is out there um, on black churches? Yes. Melissa. <laughs> Listen. Got him. Oh, my Lord. Listen, listen, listen. The largest collective landowner in Black America is the collective Black church. Mm, mm, mm. The data is out there. Uh, I just recently saw um, a full data set that was pulled from... um, government databases when people somebody just went in and pulled out the data set from these government databases and put it all together and just gave us a mind-blowing experience saying would you look at how much land we're talking about and then our organization is also uh has launched something called the black church census where we're putting this information together as well and so the information is there and organized it's not widely it's not out there like that uh, but we we're working to change that so that people can see uh, in some way that makes sense, can see um, how much land we're really talking about, how much how much in the way of assets we're talking about, how much resources we're talking about. Because I think once that is known and seen, it's going to change the conversation about how we engage the generational oppression that we've experienced as a people that I think it's no wonder that Amos Wilson in his book, Blueprint for Black Power, or Carter G. Woodson in his works, and so many others have written about the significance and the importance of the Black church being the starting point for uh, empowering Black people in the Black community. When you have this much land and buildings and money and people and story and heritage in place, it is like It's just the powerful ingredients to really just change things. And so I'm excited that that data does exist. And more and more, you're going to see us sharing that information in a way that honors and protects that data. Because, you know, parts of me, Melissa, feel like this is like the keys to Wakanda. Like this is the directions on how to get there. This is gold. This is Melissa. This is gold. gold. It is like it is like the coordinates of the Underground Railroad. Mm-mm-mm. This is about to be a game changer. Data is everything. You know, it's so crazy. I didn't even know about this. I Something just said, ask that. I was curious. I got that from nowhere. I said, let me ask. This is a game changer. This is gold. Wow. So what you heard me attempt to do at the Black Urban Growers Conference, which it was just such a dynamic experience being there. It was my first time there. It was amazing. Um, but what I attempted to do there at that conference and what I attempt to do in other spaces that are, are not like church spaces or Christian spaces or what have you is try to get people to, um, 
place whatever feelings they have about religion to the side for a moment and just engage this reality from a socio-political and economic context so that we can look at the reality of land and buildings and commercial kitchens and church vans and, and money and everything else. And then as a community, think about what does it mean to be congregational organizers, uh, uh, church-based organizers, um, to try to connect the dots around transforming our lived experience, our collective lived experience. And what that will involve is establishing relationships with these sacred and sainted church mothers, these deacons, these pastors, um, that you have to, we have to have relationships because it's one thing to look at the data in a, in a data set, right? Or a map of it. But there are actual people behind that data. So you're not going to just going to fly in and rip away all the stuff that this church has been building up for 100 years. It's going to take people who are dedicated to the relationship, who are dedicated to caring about these elders and about these churches and caring for these pastors in a way that recognizes their gifts, um, recognizes places where we are ignorant of some things, but also taking the long view of the marathon of this journey and saying it's worth it for us to have a relationship with the black church community. When I see when I see food activists and, and beginner farmers um, struggling to find land to start their farms, struggling to find resources to you know for their mark you know for markets for the stuff that they're growing, it hurts my heart. Because I'm like, listen, you need land, the church got land. You need a market, the congregation is a market. You need a prep space. The church kitchen is a prep space. But if we don't, and this same thing can be said to church leaders as well in the church community, if we don't find ways to honor whatever barriers and obstacles and hurdles that exist between the rising generation of believers and food justice activists uh, and food black food, la- black food and land sovereignty activists and church community, um, if we don't build that bridge, Melissa, we will be here 100 years from now and people will be having the same conversation. I'm like, listen, as we've heard, as I've heard going up in church, everything we need is in the house. But you got to have relationship with the people in the house if we're going to make some progress. And so I am, I'm, again, that's one, another one of the things that I'm just going to be trying my hardest to convey to the church community, to the food, justice, farmer, black farmer community, to be like, listen, y'all, there was a time when we were all together. There was a time where homecoming meant coming back down south to the family church to help the, the farmers in the community. Uh, we got to get back to that. It's not a short trip. We got some work to do, but it can be done. Man, oh man, oh man. Wow. I look forward to this all. I do. I do. Well, I now only have a few more moments with you, Pastor Brown. And let's just say we're already doing a part two. You are not getting away let's from me. You are, you are not. Want to touch on very briefly um, the Aritas Freedom School, which is just 
such a dynamic mission. And I didn't even realize you all had a school until um, I was on the website the other day. I knew about everything else. And I was just like, they have a school as well. And I watched the video of the babies just really talking about what they've been able to pull from the Freedom School, just, you know, everything from teaching them economics and their heritage and how to be, you know, self-reliance and honoring their ancestors. And so um, definitely just want to, you know, just talk about the school briefly. I also want my T-shirt. I want a (laughs) T-shirt. Awesome. We we definitely will. Uh, We'll work that out. We'll make sure you get your shirt. Um, So I I think that um, it's important to note that Aritas Cross Freedom School is, yes, an African-centered youth educational program at our church, which I started because I noticed when I first got to Pleasant Hope Baptist Church that our Sunday school was wilting. And uh, young people were not being inspired, you know, to come. Families weren't bringing the young people. Teachers were losing morale. And I knew we needed a change. And so what I decided to do was to focus my doctoral work on the question of what would it look like to combine spiritual formation and cultural identity uh, and, and, a, and a cultural identity initiative together. Because my critique of Sunday school materials and my Sunday school experience growing up was that while it was wonderful and while it gets great focus on teaching you the Bible and basic biblical stories, it did not help and feed me in the arena of what does it mean to be a black boy growing up in this country? It did not introduce me to my history, my heritage and culture. And the school wasn't doing that either, much beyond Dr. King, Rosa Parks and Frederick Douglass. And so what I saw in revamping Sunday school programs was an opportunity to say, okay, let's let's sharpen and refine what we do around spiritual formation and biblical knowledge to ensure that we are not passing on the colonizers interpretation of the radical revolutionary uh, and black peasant preacher, Jesus. Um, So let's make sure we refine that. But also. Let's make sure that we honor our full African identity and let's bring that together. Let's bring it together as a way to challenge this idea that really that comes from a a white Western theological analysis that everything African in the way of spirituality and culture is demonic and backwards. Um, There's a long program racism, white supremacy has been running to try to disconnect black people from our spiritual heritage and our religious uh, ancestral trees. And so we wanted a freedom school that kind of created a good ground for that. And also one that taught our young people hands-on skills. One of my favorite classes growing up in school was home economics. And so I wanted to have at our freedom school something where, yes, you're going to learn something new to put in your head, but you're also going to learn some skills to do with your hands. And so gardening and culinary skills and Um, mechanic and herbalism, go down the line. We teach that as well at our church so that, Melissa, our young people grow up in the kind of church where they don't feel duped once they get to a certain age, that I want them to have the kind of experience that I had in many ways, but also one that was better than I had in some ways. And so that's what Arita's Cross Freedom School is all about. Orita is a West African Yoruba word, which means where the ways come together. And I firmly believe that through this freedom school, which 
before Rona was meeting on days when public school was closed, like those professional development days, like we would scoop all of those up, make the church a school, bring out the sewing machines, bring out the herbs, take them to the garden, give them the church kitchen and kind of make that a big space for learning. That was before Rona. And now we are online, of course, in light of everything. But we are looking forward to continuing programming so that we don't have to wonder who will catch the baton uh, after it's our, you know, after we're gone from here, it's now and it's our time to transition. But I fully intend, and many of the people that I'm in community with, we fully intend to know who we're passing the baton to. Bringing back the spirit of apprenticeship, we won't know these babies till five, till 25, 35, and they won't have to wonder what they'll do with their lives next. They won't have to go find themselves, quote unquote. But there will be many paths laid out before them from farming to um, uh, to auto mechanic, uh, to professor, to author, that the full canopy of whatever it is that they want to do and what they want to paint upon, it'll be theirs because we did our due diligence for them and our grandchildren who are not even here yet. So beautiful. So beautiful. Well, Pastor Brown, we have to close. There's so much more that I wanted to get to, but we're going to do part two. You ain't going nowhere. <laughs> you, I'm going to let you go in a few moments, but you're coming back for part two. I mean, you got a lot going on. The grocery gar- uh, the grocery store gardens, gardening series that I wanted to touch on. I was actually, I watched your IG video yesterday with you. Um, you all were building a, a garden bed on a church plot and, you know, honoring our ancestors. I did it with you all. Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. I love that so much. Um, so again, thank you for spending some time with me. Where can folks find you at online if they want to connect with you, Pastor? Sure, Brown? Twitter and IG. Go to Black Church FSN, as in Food Security Network. You can find us there, or uh, BlackChurchFoodSecurity.net, or Heber Brown, H E B E R Brown, just like the color. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and IG as well. All right, sweet. So I just have a few rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready I am for me, ready. Pastor? What is your favorite veggie? Garlic. Now, hear me out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's it's gets a lot of heat because people wonder, hey, is that a vegetable? But yes, it's in the category. I'm claiming that, and I love it for its taste and all of its health benefits. Man, I was not expecting that. <laughs> You got me. <laughs> no one's ever said garlic, but all right, all right. I, 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 I wasn't ready. Okay, favorite fruit. Favorite fruit. I'll say cross between pine tie between pineapple and orange. Oh, and banana, banana. Those three. That's a sweet. I, I love that combination. Pineapple, pineapple, banana, orange. It makes for a great, just simple fruit salad. Okay, I could dig it. Sweet, spicy, sour, salty, sweet, or bitter? Sweet, sweet, All day. <laughs> All right. So this is going to be a kicker for you, Pastor Brown, because I know you love you some R&B, but, you know, just whatever you got, whatever you got on your playlist, what has been heavy on that rotation list R&B? as of late? <sighs> okay. Whatever. All right. Heavy recently has been Blackstreet. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Were you on the verses with Teddy Riley and, and that's Babyface? That's why, Melissa. You took me back. That was my childhood. That was growing up. My first little girlfriends, all of that. I've been on Black Street Heavy. And probably number two has been Jodeci. I'm always on Jodeci. Yes. 
<laughs> Man, okay, I'm Jodeci all day today. Just because of you, I'm gonna hit up title Jodeci. Bam, let it rip. <laughs> Pastor, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate you. I look up to you and your entire staff. I enjoy your videos. You know, I know it's a lot of hard work, but you all try to make it so much fun. And just thank you for being a leader and example. And, you know, none of this is without our ancestors and honoring them as well. So, you know, just again, thank you. And um, thank you all for listening and peace. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We are here live on Full Service Radio every Wednesday at 11 a.m., where you can catch today's episode on fullserviceradio.org, as well as iTunes and Spotify. Be sure to follow me at Food Talks in Color on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Are you an edible activist? Sure you are. Come join me on the show. I would love to feature you. Just shoot me a DM on the gram. Peace and blessings all. And remember, there is no culture without agriculture.